I'm Kelly Coffey, CEO of City National Bank. Our Conversations podcast features in-depth interviews with innovative leaders from business, entertainment, and nonprofits. Listen and learn how to succeed in what I'm calling the next normal. Now is the time to rethink, reinvent, and renew yourself and your business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Conversations podcast. As we enter into fall and continue to get back to some form of normalcy while also staying safe, it's difficult not to take notice of the empty buildings and businesses that did not survive this past year. Of those, restaurants were some of the hardest hit. My special guest today is no stranger to the challenges of running a restaurant before and during a global pandemic. He's a renowned restaurateur, investor, and is known for creating some of New York City's most beloved spots like Shake Shack, Gramercy Tavern, and The Modern, just to name a few. He's the founder of Union Square Hospitality Group and a dear friend, Danny Meyer. Danny, thank you so much for joining. He's the person who wouldn't want to join you, Kelly. <laughs> You're too kind. But let's start first and foremost. How are you and how's your family doing? Well, we've been incredibly fortunate. Uh, everybody has remained healthy throughout. If anything, I think we became closer as a family. I know there's a lot of people who don't like to talk about silver linings uh, to something as serious as COVID, but the time we got when we were all on lockdown was time we never, ever would have otherwise gotten. So there were some silver linings for this terrible time and and a time you never you never would have done otherwise. So we got back. So I, I want to start in, you know, City National was started by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. And one of the best aspects of my role is I get to spend time with so many amazing entrepreneurs like you. And I wanted to start with your background because my, my grandfather was a banker and I grew up actually spending time in his bank as a child and kind of came full circle without planning it, actually. And hospitality was a family business that you grew up around. And, you know, you traveled to new places and were surrounded by great food. And so how do you think about what your dad was doing, which was a travel business, right? And how did that lead you or did it lead you to where you are now? Well, it, it completely led me to where I am now. And, and I was getting in the same way that you probably were. I was getting an education without even knowing it. My dad and my mom actually lived for the first two years of their marriage, which and she was a really young bride. So she was from 19 to 21 living in France. My dad was a counterintelligence officer stationed in a small town on the border of France and Germany. And so for two years, there were almost no altercations going on. And so all they did for two, I, I shouldn't say all they did, but practically all they did was to, to get to know the innkeepers of these small restaurants and you know small inns throughout the countryside, driving their, their little car around. And my dad came back home and started a travel business, designing driving tours throughout the French countryside to stay at these inns of all the places he had made friends at. And so lo and behold, doesn't that organization become known as Relata Campagna, later Relayan Chateau? And we had French people living in our home and you know, our dog Ratatouille and my dad and I would cook every single night. And it just, I was, I, there was a bottle of wine on the table every night. We didn't get to drink it, but <laughs> you know, there was French being spoken. And, and so without even knowing it, I was getting this kind of cultural background that would one day lead to the thing that I ended up fortunate enough to be doing. So you opened your first restaurant at 27 years old, Union Square Cafe, one of my favorites, as you know. Can you share how how did that idea actually 
I mean, how did that year come about? And then it turned into a New York institution, which is which is really incredible when you look back on that. You know, you don't, I don't think ever, an entrepreneur basically has this itch that needs to be scratched. You have this idea that you just go, that's such a good idea. I got to share it with people. And I think if anything, most entrepreneurs are really bad at seeing what could go wrong. I don't think skeptics tend to, overlap with entrepreneurs too much. <laughs> no, definitely not. Definitely not. Sometimes it's helpful to surround yourself with a couple of people who can help you see what could go wrong. But entrepreneurs basically have one idea, and that is this is going to work. I just know it. <laughs> and so in my case, I think what happened, and I wasn't really aware of it at the time, but I've looked back on it quite a bit. Growing up in St. Louis, where the hospitality was just fantastic. People knew you by name. They knew you. I went to restaurants that knew my favorite table when I was eight years old. Of course, it was easy because it was underneath the cuckoo clock, which would have been any, any eight-year-old's favorite table at that restaurant. But it, it turns out that by the time I moved to New York, many, many years later, I found the food was way better in New York, but no one was nice to you. And it was like, it was almost the complete opposite of St. Louis. And so I think what happened with me, my entrepreneurial idea in New York was to open a place that if only it existed, would be my favorite restaurant. And it would have food that was really, really good, but way nicer than most restaurants were back in the, you know, the mid-1980s, where it's it almost seemed this really crazy, for a crazy five or six years you almost found that the most popular restaurants were the ones that were the meanest to you. And I never understood that. And it probably was an outgrowth of the, the studio 54 disco era, which is that, you know, the nightclub that was the most excluding and exclusive was the one that the most people wanted to go to. Mm-hmm. And I, unfortunately that sort of leached its way into the restaurant world as well. So Union Square Cafe, simply put, was a place that, was hopefully as warm as the places I had grown up with in St. Louis and hopefully as delicious as the places I loved going to in New York and also in Europe. And and it is. And I love how you put it sometimes. It's just how you make someone feel is as important as food is what you're saying, which is really something that you do incredibly well. And so now we're living through a time that looks drastically different than when you opened your first restaurant for sure. Every day is bringing a new challenge to business owners in terms of how this has evolved over the last year and a half. So, you know, and obviously your industry has been hit particularly hard. And so I think it'd be interesting for you to talk about how you've navigated, you know, uncertainty as a leader. That's one of the hardest things for people to to take. You're used to planning and you can't plan. Um, And then were there any experiences you faced early on in your career that you feel helped you prepare you to lead through this time? Well, I don't know the last time. I ever surfed in the ocean with no waves. So there's always been waves. And the only thing you know is there's always going to be another one. You just don't know the shape or size. This one has been going on for a long time. And it's been really big. And it's knocked a lot of us off our surfboards. Um, and, And I feel like what I learned through many, many years is that, and I'll, I'll go back to something you'll probably recall because of your career, 1987, which was two years after Union Square Cafe opened, there was something called Black Friday. 
and the stock market crashed. I don't have any recollection what percentage, but it was enough that um, I was pretty sure two years into my restaurant career that my career was over because you know we had built a clientele that was, as is still the case in New York City, when you can check two boxes, lots of tourists, and number two, Wall Street's doing really well, the financial community's doing, and when you can check both of those boxes, you do not need to worry about restaurants. And overnight, it seemed we were getting cancellations. And so I, I experienced that. And then, of course, um, in 1991, we had the Gulf War, which was immediately followed by a recession. And then, of course, 9-11 and then Sandy and, and then the Great Recession of uh, 2008-9. And, and so the reason I'm bringing up all those is that in a strange way, they build up our musculature that, no, this is not the thing that's going to end the world. And so if, if you accept that, and then you accept another point, which is, and when the world comes back, New York almost always comes back even stronger than it went into that thing. It's never fun, but it always happens. Then you say, all right, then I just, I just have to find a way to weather this. And the one thing that you can control during these times is how do you behave? Who are you while it's happening? Who are you to your staff members? Who are you to your, to your guests? Who are you to your community? Who are you to your suppliers? And I just feel like we did have lots and lots of years of preparation. I know this is not the thing that's going to end the world. I wish, you know, it, it, it almost seems as if we've been running this marathon for a lot more than 26 miles. And every time we think we're getting to the finish line, you know, the officials move it a couple more miles out. So it's been exhausting. It really has been exhausting, but it's it's going to be over at some point. We thought we had it in the rearview mirror, you know, this past spring and summer. And uh, maybe, maybe not after all, but but we'll get there. I think that's right. That belief that that's what makes a New Yorker. I know I've moved to LA, but I'm still a New Yorker and New Yorkers believe you can get through all thick and thin. And I think everything you pointed to, but especially September 11th, I think taught at least New Yorkers that you can get through it. And, um, and so, yeah, they keep moving the goalposts, but so talk about this, where are we now? Like talk about this summer, clearly better than last summer. I mean, the starts and stops have been really hard and nobody, the difference with this one is it's a health crisis. So that's what I've found in my business. You just, it's much more personal for people in, in some ways in some of the past crises that we've gone through and the uncertainty around understanding how it would develop. But this summer, you know, have things picked up and tourism coming back from where you sit in New York City? Little by little by little. And you're right. This And, and I think it's so important that as frustrating as it is when the goalposts get moved, you still have to put it in perspective. And, and this summer is way better than last summer. Look, I'll take New York City point of view, which is a year ago right now, we had only been able to open for outdoor dining and had only been able to do so for two months at this point. It was exactly a year ago that along with two or three other restaurateurs, we had a meeting in the former governor's office and tried to persuade the governor to permit us to open for indoor dining for the first time. And we succeeded at getting 25% capacity limit to dine indoors. So where are we now? Today, we are able to open 100% of our indoor dining. We're able to stay open outdoors. And yeah, now we have a, a 
proof of vaccination mandate for both employees and for guests. We didn't have a vaccination a year ago. You've been a leader. You've always been a leader in New York and in your industry, convincing to to open indoor dining. Vaccination's another one. You know, a lot of businesses are struggling with vaccinate, you know, making that a mandate. So how did you make that decision initially? And, and are there other steps that you're taking also to protect your team and your clients, customers? Well, we've tried to take steps to protect our team from the very, very beginning. So we started a, a pilot program with the company Clear, which you may mm-hmm. know from airports. Yep. Great company. Who had just launched a new app and a new product called uh, Health Pass. And we started doing that uh, late last spring. And we always had a requirement for our staff members to use that program and they needed to get a green check in order to work. In the way that restaurants used to give matchbooks to every single table, we would put a, a logo of that restaurant with a little thing of Purell on every single table. We had QR codes, not just for reading the menus so that it would be contact free, but also for contact tracing for every single guest who dined with us. We changed all of our air filters. We did a lot of things that were standard or should have been standard for a lot of restaurants. But the other thing, Kelly, is that we actually closed all of our restaurants a full five days before it was mandated by the city of New York in March of 2020. We also closed our restaurants 10 days before the city mandated it for all of New York in November of 2020. And we mandated vaccination proof for our staff and guests a full week before the city mandated it here. And I think the reason that we try to take that leadership role is that when you know something's right, it doesn't get less right with more time. If you're doing it to try to protect people's health, with each passing day that you don't do it, you just you just made it more dangerous. So why wait? It just doesn't make any sense. There's a lot of decisions you know are right, and you have to acknowledge it's going to be unpleasant to do it, but the unpleasantness is not a reason not to do it. That's right. Well, it sounds like you and your leadership, you have that conviction of there's a principle that you're basing your decisions behind that enable you to consistently do that. We believe very much in that. We The way we say it is clients, colleagues, community at City National, they all have to be in balance and all well taken care of. I love that. And the bigger, the bigger principle is that the alternative is what we faced last year. It was just, it was, it was a horrible handful of months where we had to say goodbye to the vast majority of our team because our restaurants were not permitted to open. And if you have no revenue and and you don't lay people off, you're going to go out of business. And so what a horrible choice that was. And none of us ever wants to have to do that again. So let's talk a little bit more about the role that you referred to. Well, you you referred to talking to the former governor, but you were also sworn in by um, the mayor as the chairman of New York City's Economic Development Corporation Board of Directors. So tell us a little bit about what that means, how it came to be, and some of the main priorities and visions for New York as we continue to battle new variants like Delta and and just some of the things, the fallout in the city, right? Because so many people left and I, you know, I, I'm hoping everybody's, and I think everybody's, most are coming back or new people will come in. As you say, New York reinvents itself every every so often, which is part of the, the vibrancy of New York. But talk about that role. You're right. Well, no one was more surprised than I was when I got a text from the mayor one day uh, <laughs> saying, please call me with no context whatsoever. I looked at the text and I, I saw the text above it, which was, my reaching out to him by text on March 16th 
of 2020 saying, I think we're in for a big problem in the restaurant industry and I want to make myself available to help out any way I can. Well, I never heard back from that until about a year later. And he was, he was, he was just saying, look, he said, we have a primary coming up in June, at which point we will pretty much know who the next mayor is going to be. And he said, I only have one priority for the last eight months of my term. And that is New York's economic and health recovery. And we need a new chairman of the EDC. I really want to ask you to consider it on behalf of the city. He said, I think that um, you and provide some credibility in the business sector that a lot of the things that we're trying to do are are reasonable and rational. And uh, I'll be as candid as I can. I never fully understood what the EDC did. It's a fascinating uh, agency that exists in New York City that has the opportunity to think in a much longer term way and much less politically expedient way than most other agencies in the city because the monies that it spends, which are all based on New York City property, land and property, doesn't have to go through the city council. And therefore, mayors often work with the EDC for long-range planning. Mayor Bloomberg was expert at it. That's how we got the High Line. That's how we did some projects like uh, Willits Point, uh, like uh, Governor's Island, like Roosevelt Island. And, and so I said, okay, it's like my city's calling me. And, and I also was heartened to know that it would likely be a finite responsibility because his term is going to be up in November. And it's just been a great learning experience. And so I've, I, what do I do? I don't do a lot, to be honest with you. I think in many respects, I have been a transponder where I receive ideas from people in the private sector who want those ideas to get to the city. And I have a place I can go with those ideas. Occasionally, I've got my own ideas. One of those ideas that I shared early on with the governor was that we needed a homecoming uh, for New York City. You know, if you think about homecomings in college, it's like, I want to remind you about this place that you used to love when you spent those four years here. And, you know, for so many New Yorkers, because we got hit so hard so early with COVID, a huge number of people left the city and some of them never came back. And I think I understand why, because if you chose to be in New York, one of the things you were self-selecting into was you wanted to be part of this vibrant place where there's people cheek to jowl. There's restaurants that are open. There's performing arts that are open everywhere. And you came back maybe for a weekend or maybe you sent your kids to school here. And all the things you came back for weren't here. The restaurants weren't what they used to look like. And, you know, a lot of stores were closed and there's no Broadway. And so my idea that I shared with the mayor way back in April of this of this year was we need a homecoming for New York City. And then that led to this big concert that we just put on about a week, a week or two ago. We had over 60,000 people. There were, you couldn't get in without successfully passing through four checkpoints uh, to show that you were vaccinated. And it was safe. It was fun. Uh, It started off with the New York Philharmonic 
playing on the great lawn and, you know, we had Santana and earth, wind and fire, just all kinds of great, great music. Um, and it reminded people what they love so much about New York. So each time something like that happens, it chips away at the, the resistance and it fuels the optimism that we will be back in a big way. So shifting gears a little bit, not only do you have your hands full with all the things we just talked about, restaurants and, you know, EDC, et cetera, but you've also written a book that I've read is excellent setting the table and it lays out your approach to the power of hospitality. So talk a little bit about that. What are your favorite parts of the book or what were you trying to achieve with it? Well, my favorite part of the book was finishing it. (laughs) (laughs) It it was was actually a project that I procrastinated for many, many years. Um, Union Square Cafe used to be on 16th Street, right off Union Square. Right now it's on 19th Street, so not very far away. Every day at lunch, we would be packed with publishers, agents, authors, editors. And I started hearing this growing chorus of people who would say, your cookbooks are really good, but next time you write a recipe book, it should be a recipe for how you guys do business because there's something that just feels different. (laughs) They didn't say it tasted different. They said it feels different in your restaurants. And uh, as I said, I I procrastinated on who, me, what what, what do they want to know about that for? And and finally, um, I did a deal with HarperCollins. And about literally two weeks after my editor had bought the book, she sadly left the company. So now I don't have an editor, but I do have a contract. And I get called into HarperCollins by the publisher who said, I'm not sure why we bought this book, but you should just know that HarperCollins is the most successful business book publisher in history. And there's exactly three kinds of business books that work, and you're none of them. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Yeah, so I felt, you know, about two inches tall at that point. And and he said, you know, the the kind of business books that work for us are celebrity, you know, authors. And he talked about Lee Iacocca and Jack Welch and all these people write about leadership. You're not that. Number two, you know, a great business expert who's, who draws through lines between data points and success at many businesses, like Jim Collins is one of our authors, good to great, built to last. You're not that. And then he said, and the other kind that, that always works is the fabulist who takes a business principle like change is hard, and they write a book, Who Moved My Cheese? You're not that. I said, well, so what should I be doing here? And he said, it's, it's very simple. And what he said kind of made me sick because it was exactly what I did not want to do. He said, since no one's ever heard of you, you've got to write a hybrid book that's going to be part memoir. Who is this person? Where did he come from? Then you have to tell us all kinds of restaurant stories and pull back the curtain and show us the, the good, the bad, the ugly. And then third, you have to tell us how you solved them. And the great news is that because we now know who you are, we'll understand why you solve those problems in that way. And by the way, if you have any one advantage with this book, it's that everyone in the world has either worked in a restaurant or eaten in a restaurant. He said, you know, when Jack Welch wrote for us about General Electric, no one in the world has any idea what GE even does. So you're you're in good shape on that front. So, you know, I didn't have a choice. I, that's the book I wrote. And um, I'm glad it's probably the best decision I ever made in my career was to write the book because 
it helped me by putting into words the stuff that had been in my heart anyway. And as our restaurant group became larger, you know, in the in the old days, I was at Union Square Cafe 14 hours a day with one restaurant for the first 10 years of my career. Then with Gramercy Tavern, I would walk back and forth between two restaurants. And then all of a sudden we had four restaurants with 11 Madison Park and Tabla. And then there was Blue Smoke and the Modern and Shake Shack. And I could no longer be at every restaurant every day. And so it was more important each day that the people who worked in our organization knew how to make choices, not just how to do things. Mm -hmm. So the reason I called it setting the table is that I learned that setting the table is something you do. It's not a choice you have to make. I, I can teach you for every one of our restaurants how that table should be set. But what I learned is that that's only 49% of the game. 51, the other 51% of the game, if you want to get 100 on your test, is the choices you make that lead to how you make people feel. And the reason we say 51% is that in a city like New York, and I would say in this country, uh, there's so much good food right now that you will never become someone's favorite restaurant because you serve their favorite roast chicken. That's like table steaks, right? You're going to become their favorite restaurant because you made them feel the most welcome. And I learned that lesson Interestingly, from the late James Beard, who was this big rotund guy who always wore a little bow tie, bald head, and everywhere he went, he was known. You know, he'd go in an airport and everybody would come up to him and ask him where they should eat. And whenever someone would say, what's your favorite restaurant? He would say, it's the same one as yours. It's the one that makes you feel the most welcome. It's so true. It's like a broad recipe, not just a recipe in the dish. It's like that whole lot of things that go into it that you do so well and orchestrate so well. I would say it's the same for almost any business. We're we're all whether we whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we're all selling a commodity of some type. Even when we come up with an innovation that's a little different, it's going to get copied overnight. And the one thing that it's really hard to copy is how did you genuinely make someone else feel? Yeah. So you wrote a book on leadership, really, on how to how to form a business, lean a business when you did, you definitely did. I read it. So it's, it's a lot of good, good things in there that are, that we use in banking. So you are also a very committed philanthropist. I know I thank you for all the wonderful work you do for many organizations, including the one we work on together, Central Park Conservancy. You've been an incredible supporter and, and help with, with Central Park. And so when you think about, as you continue to, um, do all of that and diversify your business. You're investing in great food startups. You're doing a lot um, through enlightened hospitality investments in particular. I wanted to talk about what, what companies have excited you recently, any new trends you're seeing on the horizon? Well, we, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, Kelly, after Shake Shack had its public offering in 2015, which was a great experience. It had, and that started off as a community project that started off as a project to, make Madison Square Park a safer place and hopefully to raise some funds. And it started off as a hot dog cart. I remember. Incredible. That led to a kiosk, which we called Shake Shack, never, ever expecting it to become a business, but hoping that it would make the park safer by attracting people morning and night to use the park and that we would send a percentage of our sales as rent to the park so it would actually be self-generating 
And that very first Shake Shack in Madison Square Park generates just close to a million dollars every year just in rent for that park. So it was an interesting business model experiment that I wanted to try, never, ever expecting it would become a chain or a public company. And so after it had its public offering in 2015, um, I said, you know, that was so much fun. I'd love to do it again. <laughs> and then I realized that, you know, those kind of ideas and luck don't happen all the time. And so we continue to try to plant our own seeds. We have a, a very young one right now called Daily Provisions, which is doing well. well. We'll soon have four of them in New York City. But I realized that we're not smart enough to have all these great ideas. And, and there's also not enough hours in the day. So what if we could actually identify great ideas that other people have? What if we could identify other leaders who lead with the same culture we call enlightened hospitality, where they believe that they will create the most shareholder value by first creating the most stakeholder value with their employees and their customers, their community and their suppliers. And so through that cultural lens, uh, we started to identify a lot of businesses. We raised a first fund about five years ago called um, Enlightened Hospitality Investments. And we've made about 13 investments, um, almost always a minority stake in a company to provide you know, fertilizer so that beanstalk can keep growing. And we've had a lot of good success. We feel very, very fortunate by betting on culture and leadership now we're off to the races, uh, almost done with raising our second fund. And we started a SPAC uh, earlier this year. It's listed on the New York Stock Exchange as HUGS, H-U-G-S, which- Great name. Great ticker. Conveniently is an anagram for USHG. There again, we're looking for a business that is led by somebody who believes that you will create more shareholder value when you first take care of your staff and make them your first customer. And so I also heard you're opening a new restaurant, which I'm really excited about, Chisiamo. So great. Did I say it right? Chisiamo? That's great. We're very excited about it. It's it's a it's our favorite thing to do, which is try to bet on a new neighborhood. And um, this is truly a new neighborhood. Brookfield Properties has created something called Manhattan West. I know it well because we opened a branch during the pandemic right there. So we're we're gonna be we're gonna be a frequent user. Yeah, which is fun. So Chisiamo is is not a three-year-old name. That was a name I came up with last spring, I think. And it was like, Chisiamo is like, when you hear that in Italy, it means we have arrived. We are finally here. Here we are. And that's just the way we have been feeling, which is after all of this we've gone through, we have finally arrived. And I feel like New York is ready for that moment. And I hope New York will be ready for this restaurant too. It's challenging opening in this in a pandemic, but we're at the tail end, hopefully, and you've got the vaccinations. So I, I'm excited that it'll be here soon. Um, so let's let's end on a really optimistic note. What are you looking forward to most in 2021? Any big plans for fall holiday? Anything? Looking forward to more and more people feeling more and more ready to be out and about, and and to truly believe that that we can resume our lives of hugging and being with people. I'll be excited about that. And I think all the traditions, I'm in the same, you know, I just actually every year, one of our fun traditions is I take all of my nieces. My nephews only come one year, but all my nieces always want to go to the Nutcracker. So we're, we're buying tickets to the Nutcracker and we're going to hope that everything continues, which I think it will go well. 
Well, Danny, thank you so much for, for sharing all your insights and thoughts and perspectives through this time. I really appreciate it. It's always fun getting to catch up with you. So hopefully we'll do it soon yes. over some over some food at Chisiamo. Please let me know. I will. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll subscribe to Conversations so you'll never miss an episode. We have lots of great guests this season who will inform and inspire you.